and welcome back to Franklin Covey's On Leadership series. I'm your weekly host and interviewer, Scott Miller. And as you know, each week we try to curate a different guest that we think will bring insight to what is now the world's largest and fastest growing podcast internationally focused on leadership. And so each week we bring a different thought leader, author, CEO, creative artist, or someone who's been through their own journey that we think is especially relevant and salient to all of our listeners and viewers. And today I'm humbled and honored to introduce to you our guest, the number one New York Times bestselling author and victims advocate, Elizabeth Smart. Elizabeth, welcome to On Leadership. Well, thank you very much. I'm excited to be here. So Elizabeth, our original plan was to have you in the studio because we both live here in Utah, not too far from each other up in Park City, but because of the pandemic, we've decided to stay safe and distance, and you're joining us today from your home. So thank you for continuing to do that with a little bit of distance between us. Well, no problem. Thank you. My kids are happy. They'll probably be banging on the door here in a minute. So <laughs> We all can thank relate. You. Everything is kind of forgiven right now. You know, Elizabeth, through no um, uh, effort of your own, you have been thrust into the worldwide spotlight. And I'm sure you've been told this many times. There are pivotal points in everybody's life where we remember where we were, right? I remember I'm 51, so I'm almost your parents' age. I remember where I was on July 4th, 1976, right, with the 200th anniversary of our country. I remember where I was when I heard President Reagan was shot. I remember where I was when the Challenger exploded. I was on the soccer field of my junior high school. I remember where I was, you know, during the 9-11 attacks. And, and I don't mean to associate you with, you know, bad news, but I remember where I was when I heard that Elizabeth Smart had been found. I remember I was standing in the office, the Franklin Covey office in Chicago, Illinois. I was standing next to Brian Walther's cubicle when it came across the news that Elizabeth Smart had been found. And I didn't know you. I had lived in Utah. I didn't know your parents, your family, like everyone around the world. I was captivated with, you know, obviously your, your kidnapping and the journey to find you. And you were in everybody's um, thoughts and prayers. And I think it was, you know, nearly nine months had passed. And I remember I didn't believe it. I just was, I, I was you know, stricken. I, I was not a resident of Utah. I was not a member of the dominant faith of Utah, but I was, of course, connected with you through prayers and through thought and, you know, never gave up hope. And I imagine that's the feeling that hundreds of millions of people felt when they learned of your eventual rescue. Although I don't want to spend our time today necessarily recreating uh, the horror that was your captive. Would you be willing to talk about what the final hours were like and their being reunited with your family felt like so people can get a little bit of the sense of um, how that has shaped your focus and passion now on moving forward, moving on forgiveness and really kind of a rebirth in your life. Sure, yeah. So I had been kidnapped for the previous nine months my captors had threatened to kill me, threatened to kidnap my sister, go after my family, hurt my family, kill my family. Um, I'd spent the last nine months on and off being chained up. I had been, you know, malnourished. I had had sleep withheld, water withheld. I mean, I, I experienced a lot with my captors, to say the least. And I remember it, they had taken me to Southern California for the winter because I wouldn't have survived Utah. And I was able to convince them to return to Utah in March. And we hitchhiked back. 
And I remember as we got closer and closer and closer to Utah, I just got more and more excited because even though I didn't know if I was going to be rescued, I thought I probably wouldn't be rescued. I just was excited to be that much physically closer to my family because while I'd been in Southern California, not only did I feel physically far away, but I felt emotionally far away. I just felt so isolated and alone while I was in California and the thought that I could be back in Utah, um, at least I would be physically closer, sure. even if I never saw my parents or any of my family. And so I remember, I mean, like that morning, I remember we had, we had, there had been a trucker who had dropped us off. It was probably two, two in the morning, maybe three in the morning. And we were down in, I want to say, Orem. I mean, we were coming up I-15. The trucker had picked us up in Las Vegas and he was going to drop us off. I want to say it was Orem somewhere. And we got there and it was so early in the morning. So um, my captor, Brian Mitchell, like, went out, snuck across the street, tried to find a place where he could just like send the little pop-up tent and we could sleep there for a couple hours and then continue on our way back up to Salt Lake, back up to the mountains surrounding Salt Lake, where I was told I would never, ever be let, let out of the mountains ever again. And he ended up finding a little park and we went and put the tent up. And I remember I woke up to him raping me that morning. And then we got up, we packed everything up. We started heading into town. I mean, we had uh, someone offer us a ride to a McDonald's. I want to say it was like two miles away. It wasn't very far. And we ended up catching a couple buses to get in closer to Salt Lake. We were still, we were in South Salt Lake. We were in like the Draper, South Jordan area, about 106 South. We had gone into a Walmart because my captor had said, you know, we need to get some heavy duty snow boots and we need to pick up a couple things before you go up into the mountains because you won't have this opportunity to come and get them again. And that just means I'm going to have to come down and get them. And I don't really want to lug extra things up for you. So he went in there. He stole some snow boots. We came out out of the parking lot of Walmart. We're walking up State Street. And all of a sudden, a police car pulled up and another one, another one. And honestly, I was pretty scared. I was terrified. I mean, for the last nine months, no one had ever been able to protect me from my captors. No one had ever been able to stop them from hurting me or stop them from doing whatever they wanted to me. So I didn't really feel like this was going to be any different. I mean, we'd been approached by police in the past and nothing had ever happened. And as these officers questioned my captors, my captors gave them this whole story that was made up. And in the back of my mind, all I could think of were the constant threats that they made every single day that I was kidnapped them. If I ever ran, if I ever screamed, if I ever did anything they didn't want me to do, they'd kill me. And if they didn't kill me, they'd kill my family. And so I always felt the great responsibility to protect my family. And I always thought if, if he killed my family, what would be the point of trying to survive? What would be the point of trying to continue on? There wouldn't be a point. So it really falls on me to make sure that they're safe. I mean, this is coming from the mind of, at that point, I was now 15 years old. I mean, and I've lived pretty sheltered, a very sheltered life up until I was kidnapped. So, I, I mean, I just, and I had no reason to believe that anyone could protect me from my captors. So I initially gave the story and answers I'd been told to give by my captors. And finally, one of the officers separated me away from my captor just a few feet, started to question me again. And that's when he said, you know, there's this girl, she's been missing now for a very long time. Her family has never stopped searching for her. They've never stopped loving her. They want her to come home more than anything else in this whole world. 
don't you want to go home now? And it was really only then in that moment that I, that I felt like I could admit who I was, that I felt like maybe, maybe this officer could protect me from my captors because he clearly recognized who I was. And so if he could recognize who I was when everyone else never did, then, then maybe he could protect me. We ended up um, being taken to the police station. I was separated from my captors. We were put in separate cars. I was brought to the police station. I still didn't really know what was going on. I actually thought I was in trouble. I actually thought I was going to jail because um, they had handcuffed me on the way over. I was brought into this little small room. They didn't unhandcuff me, but in my mind, I thought, oh, well, this must be the holding cell. And what's going to happen next? And then the next thing I remember was the door just bursting open. And it was like my dad materialized out of thin air. And he just came running up and he started hugging me and he was crying. And and it took a minute for me to respond because I thought I was going to jail. And the next moment I know I'm pretty much being suffocated by my dad. But I also remember that it was in those moments that he was holding me. It was the first time that I felt safe for the last like in the last nine months. It was the first time that I felt like it was going to be okay, that it didn't really matter what lay ahead because my dad was there and he was going to protect me and he was never going to let another person hurt me ever again. And I was just so excited to feel those feelings again. So excited to be back home. I mean, that evening when I was brought home to my house, I mean, wow, I felt like a princess, you know, there was carpet and running water. And I mean, I had a bed and I had, you know, everything I, I felt that everything that had been taken away from me had all of a sudden been given back. And I just remember just being so excited to have my life back and, and feeling like I didn't want to miss out on anything ever again. I wanted to feel like I was living my life to the absolute fullest that I could. Elizabeth, thank you for sharing that with us. You do so quite matter of fact right now. It's been more than a decade for those millions of viewers and listeners that are listening to you share the story now quite um, almost scientifically, what do you attribute your ability now to talk about it with such clarity and calm and poise and deliberation when it's a story that none of us, I hope, can even relate to? What is the journey you've been on as you look at now being an you know, international um, victim rights advocate and spokesperson and um, model What's that journey been like in terms of your own recovery? I mean, it took me a long time to to feel like I wanted to share my story. I mean, I didn't want to share my story for years and years. I didn't want to tell anyone about it. Didn't want my parents to know anything about it. I was embarrassed and I was ashamed of what had happened. And I, I knew it wasn't my fault. I knew it wasn't my fault for being kidnapped. I knew it wasn't my fault for being raped. I knew it wasn't my fault for doing what I had to do to survive. But there were still, I mean, even knowing that, there were still just these elements of shame and embarrassment and guilt. Like, people would never be able to look at me the same way ever again because, I mean, I'd been ruined. I, for, for a lot of people who, thank goodness, haven't experienced rape or sexual violence, I think it's really hard to fully understand how that hurts you. I mean, it's not just a physical act. I mean, it, it's yeah. like it destroys your spirit a little bit. It destroys who you are a little. I mean, it can do it a lot, but um, it definitely made me feel like I was not 
as good as everyone else. It made me feel like I was not as worthy as everyone else. And I wanted to hide that from people. I wanted everyone else to, to look at me and think of me just the same way as they thought of everyone else. So I was very hesitant to share my story for, for a long time. And in fact, I didn't, not until my case actually went to, went to trial. And I mean, that, that was an experience in and of itself. I mean, you know, it was almost a decade after I was rescued that my case actually went to trial. I mean, I, I was in my twenties and um, I, I remember when I finally realized, I mean, cause over the years I'd been told, oh, well, you won't have to go. You can have someone else stand in your place. You, um, but it kept changing and never stayed consistent. And finally, when I realized that it was gonna have to be me, that I was gonna have to testify, I remember just thinking, well, this is stupid. This has gone on for, I mean, eight years. That's how long it took. Um, this has gone on for eight years. I'm so sick and tired of this. Every other week, it's always like, oh, well, everyone's at a standstill. Nobody knows what to do. They think he's incompetent or not competent to stand trial. Or was he competent when he, I mean, it was always this issue of competency. And part of me was just like, you think someone insane could do what he did to me? Someone who didn't know what they were doing could do that to me? He knew what he was doing. And nobody ever bothered to ask me what I thought if I thought he was competent or not. Anyways, we don't even need to spend time talking there because I could go on forever. Um, but finally realizing that it was going to have to be me. It was going to have to be my testimony. I was going to have to go and take the witness stand. I just decided I was going to do whatever I had to. I was going to answer any question that I had to. And that, that was it. I was going to do what I had to. So I only had to do it once. At, and... I was going to do it the very best that I could. And so once I made up my mind, that was it. I, I did it. And um, once it came out, um, I started thinking that this was not how I wanted my story to really be shared because from just taking my testimony out of the trial, I mean, it just showed up as, bullet points or a list of facts and and I felt like I'm more than a list of facts I'm more than a list of bullet points I mean this is my story this is my life I mean this is what happened to me and a list of bullet points or a list of facts that that's not going to share you know how I felt beforehand how I felt afterhand what what caused this to happen I mean this does not share this is just very straight to the point black and white facts um, this does not share the whole story. And that's really what prompted me to write my book. And as I started writing my book, I started speaking. And as I started speaking, I started meeting other survivors and I started hearing their stories. And I started to realize, wow, like I knew the statistics. I knew that I wasn't the only one who's ever experienced sexual violence or kidnapping or rape. But until I really started putting faces to, to the statistics, it was just easy to think of them as numbers. And then when I started realizing, I mean, every single one of us, whether we know it or not, knows someone who has been sexually abused, knows someone who has been raped, knows someone who has been hurt. And I mean, we might not know that we know it, but we do. I mean, because that's just how high the numbers are. 
Elizabeth, uh, thank you. Your, your story is captivating. I, I can't help but watch you and think of the beautiful mother you've become, the spokesperson, the human rights advocate. You're so composed. Um, I know some of your extended family and such, and so I want to, on behalf of the millions of people that are listening and watching, honor you for your courage and your uh, perseverance. You have also authored two books. Your first book was called My Story, number one New York Times bestselling book. It is riveting. Uh, I read it and had to put it down several times. Uh, my wife and I are the parents to three beautiful young boys, um, six, eight, and 10. I had to put it down and kind of regather myself on several occasions. In preparation for today's interview, I read your most recent book, Where There Is Hope, Healing, Moving Forward, and Never Giving Up. Th this book is a treasure. What you've done in this book is you've interviewed about 20 plus people on their own stories of healing, of moving forward, of forgiveness. And what I'd like to do in the next time, if you don't mind, is, is through your lens, share this sort of contagiously abundance mentality. This story is a little bit about your journey, but it's mostly about the journeys of these other people. I'd like to talk, um, I picked out a couple of them. Close to home is the story of Rebecca Covey, who of course is the wife of my friend and colleague, Sean Covey. Sean Covey and I serve on the executive team together. I've known Sean Covey for 24 years. I was at Sean and Rebecca's house a few weeks ago. I've been to Hawaii with them on numerous occasions. And, and, and like many millions of people, um, suffered along with them when their daughter Rachel passed away. You interviewed Rebecca Covey in a very tender, very vulnerable time about learning about her daughter's depression. Would you recreate some of that discussion with Rebecca Covey and the passing of her daughter, what you learned from that, and talk a bit about their Bridal Up um, Hope Foundation? Absolutely. So actually, I first came into contact with them through Bridal Up Hope. They asked me if I wouldn't mind coming speaking um, at, I think it was one of their opening, one of their first galas for Bridal Up Hope. And I'm, I'm a huge fan of horses. And I mean, I feel like they are, I know this is almost sappy, but I feel like they're magical creatures and they certainly have... Um, played a big part of, of my healing and they've yeah. been a big part of my life. And so that's how I first really met Sean and Rebecca. And um, at these conventions, I mean, I heard little snippets of, of their story about um, Rachel. Uh, I didn't really know the full story, but as I started to think of people that I looked up to, of people that I admired, of people who I felt like had gone on and not allowed what happened to them to define them, of course, Sean and Rebecca Covey came to mind. And so I was actually very hesitant in asking because I never really fully knew right. the full story of mm -hmm. what happened. Um, but I just knew that they had gone on to create this amazing organization, that they were helping so many girls, and, and I'm a fan of it. Um, so I, I emailed Rebecca and I asked if it would be okay. And, and honestly, I was, I was pretty nervous going in there um, just because I feel a real responsibility to make sure that I don't ever re-traumatize anyone. And a lot of time it's hard to know where a person is in their healing journey. It's hard to know if 
talking about something is going to cause old pain to resurface or possibly new pain. And that's certainly the last thing that I want to do. Plus, at the time that I was interviewing her, I actually had my, my oldest daughter with me who she was, I think, about 18 months. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think I was pregnant or just, just barely pregnant with my second child at the time. And so, I mean, I couldn't imagine the loss of a child. I mean, when I had my, my first baby, my daughter, like I just remember feeling like my heart moved out of my chest and relocated in my throat and it's never gone back to my chest. Um, and I just couldn't imagine losing a child. And yet I knew that's what she had done. And I remember walking into her home and there was a picture of her beautiful daughter, Rachel. Mm -hmm. And I saw behind like some glass French doors, a, a harp. And I grew up playing the harp. And I mean, her home was just, I mean, it was lovely and it was beautiful, but it was a home. I mean, it yeah. felt right. like a home. You know, it's not like a museum. It's not cold and don't touch anything. It's a, it's a lovely, warm, well-lived-in home. And she brought me into um, one of their offices and we sat down and we started talking. And she started talking to me about Rachel. And honestly, I was really pretty taken aback because, I mean, she she played the harp. We, we attended the same music camps. Um, she loved horses. I loved horses. I mean, there were just like so many similarities between her and I. It was almost uncanny. Right. And then just to think, to hear her talk about Rachel and, and what happened to her and have her explain it um, the way that she did, I had no idea. I mean, I threw out these galas and what I knew about Bridal of Hope. I mean, I just had no idea the extent of, of what happened and how sensitive Rachel was and and having Rebecca explain how she was on all of these medications and just, she was so sensitive, basically any uh, side effect that the drug could possibly give, um, gave Rachel and her talking about how Rachel finally came and said to her, I can't do this. I don't feel like me. I feel like it's someone else in my body when I'm on these drugs I want to get off of these drugs. And, and Rebecca saying, okay, but you cannot just go cold turkey. You have to wean yourself off it. And then her telling me that she thinks that that's what, that's what happened, that uh, Rachel did just go full cold turkey on, on taking all the medications. And she thinks that's ultimately what took uh, Rachel's life. And it was a very, I mean, it was a very special, I'd even say sacred experience yeah. Yeah. for me, for someone to trust probably one of the, probably the worst day, the worst experience of her life with me. I mean, it's, it's a very sacred trust that I don't take lightly. And then to see the Coveys go on and build this amazing organization, Bridal Up Hope in Rachel's honor um, and kind of really pick up the work that Rachel unknowingly began just by taking her friends out riding who were struggling uh, I think it's really inspirational. And every time that I come across um, a girl who's struggling and who is asking for help and who's under 18, I always send them to Bridal Up Hope because I do believe in the program and I absolutely believe in the work that they're doing. 
And I think that I, I just, I'm a fan. I think it's amazing. And I think they are just salt of the earth people. Elizabeth, I can't help but think about your composure and your articulation, even right now in our interview, the story that you and Rebecca share together in the book is a gift. It's a gift to any parent who's lost a child. It's a gift to anyone who struggled with depression or anxiety, or in Rachel's case, also dyslexia, and the role that their dyslexia played in their self-esteem and their struggles. You and Rebecca, um, in the most tender and, like you say, sacred of life um, challenges, you, you share uh, um, this journey as parents. I had to put the book down because I know Rebecca well. I know Sean extremely well. You and Rebecca shared details that I was not aware of. They, they were done so not in a gratuitous way, not in a morbid way, but in a way that was kind of a call to action for all parents, for all people who have people in their lives that are struggling, what to think about, what to look for. I want to honor you and Rebecca and Sean for, I'm going to say it for the third time, the gift that you gave all of us reading this book. If any of our listeners or viewers themselves are struggling with depression, anxiety, or other issues that are becoming overwhelming, the book that you have written and the interviews that you have offered are, um, I think, remarkably helpful. I will be a better parent to our three boys and be more thoughtful about what they're struggling with as a result of reading the story that you and Rebecca share in the book. Uh, of the other 20-plus interviews, you share one about Diane von Furstenberg, right? The renowned uh, entrepreneur, fashion impresario. She invented the wrap dress. She, of course, is also well-known for um, her lifestyle, for her interviews, married to Barry Diller. Would you take a few moments and share fascinating story about Diane von Furstenberg and her mother and her own heritage. She actually, I was on Instagram just the other day and I saw her mentioning her mother again. And it just made me think of, of being able to interview her and how she spoke of her mother. Um, her mother was a survivor of the concentration camps. And by the time that she got out of the concentration camps, she weighed, I believe it was about 59 pounds. I mean, that's pretty much just the weight of her bones and um i mean her mother was really heroic she i'm pretty sure my memory serves me correctly but she was part of like the belgium resistance right. um, yeah. she helped carry messages back and forth and she was caught and she wrote on a scrap of paper with some charcoal um that she had been taken and that message actually did end up finding its way back to her parents. She survived, which is miraculous in and of itself. And what Diane said to me was that her mother said to her that surviving the concentration camps was trying to run through the rain and miss all the raindrops. I mean, if you've ever stood outside during the rain, you know you're not gonna miss the raindrops. It's just impossible to miss it. You're gonna get wet. And to have that kind of imagery used in comparing what it was like to being in the concentration camps, that's pretty vivid. At least for me, that's pretty vivid. That you just couldn't miss it. I mean, you had to go through it. There was nothing, there was no way of avoiding what was going on around you. You just had to survive. You just had to do whatever it took. And of course, we know that millions and millions and millions didn't have a survive and they didn't even have a chance or a choice to survive. So it was a miracle that uh, her mother survived it all. And then just how she went on and she became such 
an example, such a, a hero of what it means to be a strong woman and how she instilled that in Diane. I mean, even before my interview, of course, I knew who Diane von Furstenberg was and um, I knew about her clothes, but I, I didn't realize what a strong woman and example she has set for women around her. And I really, really admired her. I mean, since interviewing her in preparation for interviewing her, I, I listened to her books. Um, I, you know, read as much as I could about her. And then of course I followed her. I followed her ever since. I mean, I followed her before it happened and I've really gained a greater, greater appreciation for who Diane von Furstenberg is and for what she has done and for how she has furthered and promoted the cause of women everywhere. And it was actually through Diane von Furstenberg that I was able to start my own foundation. And so I will always have that debt of gratitude to her. I mean, without her, who knows if I ever would have started the Elizabeth Smart Foundation? Probably not. So um, I certainly feel a great debt of, of, of gratitude towards her for that. And her mother, I mean, her mother instilled so many life lessons in her. her mother was told that you know, she wouldn't be able to have children because the abuse that she went through uh, that happened to her body was just too severe for her to survive. And Diane says that she, you know, she never remembers her mother being weak. She says the one thing she does remember was that, um, oh wait, nope, that wasn't even her. That was Diane herself that she doesn't, oh no, maybe, sorry, now I'm getting it confused because I've thought about it so much. And sometimes when I overthink things, okay. I get It's so okay, fine, fine. Elizabeth, um, to, to, to jog your memory, you do share in the book the story. I think you say that this note that you mentioned when Diane von Furstenberg's mother was exposed um, as part of the resistance, she was captured, sent to the camps. Before she did that, she wrote this note. You mentioned at the with the tip of a match, charcoal. And it was, it made it back to his family. But you mentioned, I think, that Diane discovered this story. Is it after her mom's passing, this note? And she has the note? The note, yes, she has the note, and she discovered the note after her mother's passing. Um, I mean, I can't even imagine how that would have been for her, like seeing the physical proof of yes. of what her mother said happened. Yeah. I mean, that would yeah. be that would be quite something. You I mean, share, I, yeah, you but, share the whole story under the chapter of kind of this idea of the strength of spirit, right? You interview a couple different people. You yourself are a testament, obviously, to that very topic. Um, I, our time is tight. I want to move to one more story. Each of these are captivating. Again, the whole book is organized around kind of how your own journey relates in some ways to a lot of people you interviewed. You talk about a gentleman named Chris Williams, who I don't know. And it's under this idea of the power of forgiveness. And you have, yourself have talked about how you have chosen to forgive your captors. They now, I hope, are incarcerated. Uh, you share the story because it is visceral about the experience of Chris Williams and how he ended up on the other side of his tragedy, able to forgive. You know, and it's interesting because I was able to interview, I mean, amazing, incredible people. And, you know, I, like, of course, it's very emotional for me hearing people's different stories, but I mean, I was able to always remain like very calm and just very, um, put together. I mean, I didn't cry through these other stories, but when Chris Williams told me his story, I mean, I flat out bawled like a baby 
there was just no stopping it. I mean, as hard as I tried and I sat there feeling like an idiot because he's sitting there telling me his story. He's so kind. He's such a, such a kind, good person. And I'm sitting there just like crying my eyes out. He's like, it's okay. He's like, do you need a drink of water? And I was like, do I need a drink of water? Do you need a drink of water? Um, but he was, I mean, he was amazing. He talked about how he, he was married and he and his wife, they had, um, they had a whole, whole bunch of kids and they were pregnant with, I believe it was their fifth child. Yeah, I think you said so, yeah. And, and, um, they decided he, he talks about it kind of being this perfect day and they decide that they're, they're going to, you know, go out to dinner. They go out to dinner they have a wonderful time. You know, their one son who's like the practical jokester of the family had never been funnier and his cute little daughter. She'd never been cuter. And he, he just talks about how their family in that moment seemed to be in absolute harmony and absolute peace. And, you know, his beautiful wife was about five or six months pregnant. I mean, she was past the halfway point, right. you know, and, um, they decided to go out for ice cream and there's this underpass. And I, I know exactly where this underpass is. I mean, I've driven this underpass plenty of times. Um, my mom used to call it the rabbit hole growing up because you go down one side of the hill and it's pretty steep and there's the freeway going over you. And then you drive up the other side. Um, and it's just like, I mean, it's, it's like a little rabbit hole. You go down and then you go immediately back up and it's pretty steep. And he talks about how he was going under this underpass and there was a car headed towards them and that he, he could see he was out of control. And he talks about how it was almost in slow motion and this car hit them. And he just talks about, I mean, his experience, it really, the way he describes it is really almost otherworldly. It doesn't sound uh, real. It doesn't sound, um, I don't know. It just sounds otherworldly. And then he gets surreal. He, talks about hearing this noise and he opens and well, he opens his eyes and he realizes it's him. It's him screaming. And of course his body's badly mangled, but he looks over at his wife and um, he can just tell she's dead. He's able to touch her and he can feel that, that she's dead. He looks in the back and he can see her, his little daughter and she's slumped over and her hair is in her face. And he just knows that she's dead. And then his other son is dead. And his unborn child is dead. And then he has, um, I mean, one of his sons was out playing um, out with friends that night. So he, thank goodness, uh, wasn't part of the accident. But then he hears his other son. And his other son makes a noise. And he realizes his one son is alive. But, I mean, they're trapped in this car. The car's been crushed. I mean, he's just talks about like this, I uh, just, I can't, I can't even imagine having, have, I just, I don't know it, listening to him talk about it and reading his book, I mean, it just, I just don't, it's just heartbreaking. And, and the heart, another heartbreaking aspect of it is, is the person that hit him was also just a young man i mean he was he's pretty much a boy and he he was drunk and i mean he was i think you said he was 17 years old he was intoxicated i think you said the um 
the police officers said he was probably going about 70 miles an hour in about a 30 mile an hour um, zone. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah, that's it. And it's and I think Chris came back and told me that there was no way that he could have driven or maneuvered his car right. that something else would have happened. I mean, there just there wasn't the time there. Like there just wasn't any way for him to get out of this kid's way. And I mean, not only you think of the lives that it destroyed. Um, I mean, it killed more than half of Chris's family. And then how that must have affected this young man, um, knowing that he caused the deaths of so many people. Uh, the part that like really got to me was, I mean, of course, he and his son are rushed to the hospital. It's very, you know, it's, it's pretty serious. Both yeah, of them are in pretty serious condition. Right. Yeah. You know, their lungs are, are full of blood. They've got broken bones. I mean, there's internal bleeding. Um, it's pretty It's pretty serious. But after they're released from the hospital and he talks about his wife's funeral and how, um, now I'm getting emotional. Just I'm getting emotional listening because I know where the story is going. Please do your best to tell the story. It's a big gift to everyone. But how he talks about how, you know, he sees his wife laid out in her casket and then how they pass him this little baby son that she she had been pregnant with. And he talks about how perfect this little baby son was and just like so small and just so perfect and yet never have this chance of life and how he, you know, Jesus <laughs> lays uh, this baby down in the casket next to his wife, Michelle, and then how he has to close the casket lid on his wife and his little baby son. Um, I mean, for me, like, geez, I just, I like, I'm still losing it. And it's been, you know, it's been a while since I wrote that part of the book. I had to close the book because I think you also mentioned he then closed the caskets on two of his other children. Um, yeah, and it's 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 incomprehensible. It's 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 um, it's incomprehensible. In the story you talk about, he went on and got remarried to a woman who I think was a widow, who husband who had also passed away, I think, from cancer. They now have a blended family with new children, and it's a it's a it's a beautiful journey that moves on. The power of your reason for telling it is about forgiveness. Talk to this gentleman's ability to forgive the young man who made decisions that took the lives of many people. Um, Chris is just a, a, a hero. I mean, he really is. Um, when this young man was in the court and the judge asks Chris what he would like to happen to this young man, I mean, Chris very wisely says, well, you get paid the big bucks to do that, not me. And um, I mean, I like, I think when people have asked me what I want to happen to my captors, I think I generally have an answer. But to someone who has, you know, had his entire, well, not his entire, but the majority of his family taken away right. from him from, yeah. from this stupid action, stupid decision to drive while being drunk, um, he just very kindly and graciously comes back and i mean he's not asking for you know the death penalty or a life sentence or anything like that at all and actually this young man gets a, quite a very lenient um sentencing and while he's in prison 
Chris actually goes in and he uh, talks to him. And ultimately he does forgive him. And he says, you know, I want you to go on and live the best life you can. You have to, you are obligated to live the best life you can because these other lives are no longer. And so you need to live your best life for them. And how this young man, he has since been released from prison. And I believe he pursued a degree in medicine. I think he's a doctor now. Um, and he's gotten married and he's on, you know, living a living as far as I know, the best life that he can. And I just think it's such a, I mean, really a beautiful, beautiful example of forgiveness. And then also on this young man's part for trying to live his best life possible. Um, I mean, Chris didn't want him to feel, feel terrible for, for what he'd done for the rest of his life. He wanted him to move forward and he wanted him to, you know, be successful. And I think that that speaks a lot for, for both of them. One, that Chris was able to come to this point and be able to do that. And secondly, for this young man to, to be able to take Chris's advice and, and to follow it um, for himself. I think that just, I think it speaks a lot about both of them. I think that's an understatement. Elizabeth, you've also written in your book that you have chosen to forgive your captors. And I imagine it's a very complex and personal experience for you. As you end this discussion with us today, and thank you again for your, your, your um, transparency, for your vulnerability, for your abundance in letting people into your journey, what have you learned from the time that you were um, kidnapped and, and the horrific time you spent, your journey since then, your marriage, your speaking, your, your being a mom now to three children. What would you send our listeners and viewers off with the lessons that you have learned, many of which you share in your new book, Where There's Hope? Well, first of all, everyone has a story. I mean, we're all different. All of our stories are different, but we all have one. And you never compare yourself to anyone else because at the end of the day, you're two completely different people. I mean, you, you just can't compare yourself to anyone else because, because you are different, because you are unique. And so everyone has a story, so it never hurts to be kind. It never hurts to err on the side of kindness. I read an article recently and um, I can't remember who said it, but I'm pretty sure it was an etiquette specialist. <laughs> I know, random article to read. But she said, if people could just start, she used the, the term default to kindness, then that like life would be a much better place. And I actually really, really like that. And it kind of stuck with me. I think if we all could just default to kindness, um, the world would be a much better place. And because you don't know what everyone's gone through and you just see them at face value and maybe someone's a little bit abrupt with you or short with you at the grocery store or the gas station or um, wherever work. I mean, you just, you don't know what that person has been through and maybe they're just having a terrible, terrible day. And they're generally a, a very kind, nice person. And maybe your being kind to them is going to help change their day. I don't know. That's almost sounds like trite and trivial, but it almost comes down to like those basic, obvious sort of lessons that you think everyone knows in life. But I actually do believe it's true. I mean, personally, I also feel like I've learned never say never because once you say that, you're just tempting fate. Um, 
<laughs> but um, I think everyone has a story to share and everyone is on this planet for better or for worse to make a difference. And so you will never know the impact that you have. And I'm certainly, Scott, you there at Franklin Covey and the work on leadership that you do, you, you folks are in that business. You know that better than anybody else, that every single person, every single one of us absolutely can make a difference and does make a difference. And we need everyone to step up their game just a little bit more, to be a little bit kinder, to be a little bit more, um, you know, compassionate and empathetic and understanding and, you know, persistent and hardworking. And I mean, we need everyone. We need all of humanity to step it up just a little bit more. Elizabeth Smart, thank you for joining us. Your resiliency, your focus, your kindness, your forgiveness is a memorable reminder to all of us. If you can speak these words and live these words, then every one of us can too. I wish you and your family well. Uh, talk a bit about what you're working on now and what's next for you. Sure. So um, as we're all stuck during down in lockdown during this pandemic, um, I've had much more time to work on my foundation because um, I'm not traveling anywhere and I'm not doing presentations or conferences or anything because um, those have all been stopped for the foreseeable future. Uh, so I have been able to spend a lot more time working on my foundation, which we focus on the prevention and education um, of sexual exploitation, violence, rape, and abuse. And uh, we, we had created a self-defense program. However, that is also on pause right now because obviously self-defense usually involves people interacting with other people in close proximity. So uh, we've put that on hold at the moment, but we, one of our uh, education sides, our prevention education sides is also doing a podcast. And so we have been working like crazy on trying to get this podcast uh, up and going and it actually is up and going our first real episode was just um released yesterday so it's very exciting time for me personally exciting time for the foundation um we want to i mean we want to share stories of of people of their experiences but we also want to spread education so we have therapists coming on we have survivors coming on we have advocates coming on we have um agencies that their whole purpose is to help survivors overcome or get through um you know we've had prevention education education specialists come on so we have done been recording just all of these episodes episode after episode and honestly it's been amazing for me uh after a full day of talking about podcasts and recording them and speaking to these this array of amazing people. Um, usually by the end of the day, I am exhausted yep. and I just want to, you know, I'll go downstairs to watch TV with my husband and he'll be like, Oh, let's watch Tiger King or, you know, <laughs> let's watch Unorthodox. And there's part of me that's like, wait, I can't do that right now. Can we just watch, you know, great British bake off again? <laughs> like easy. I need easy yes, as a light topics. Yes. Yeah, I can relate. Elizabeth, what is the name of your podcast? Smart Talks. And Smart you Talks. can subscribe to us on our website, elizabethsmartfoundation.org. We're on Spotify. We're on Google Play. We have submitted 
it to Apple. We're still waiting for them to get back to us, um, but we are working on getting on all the major platforms for podcasts. So it's exciting. Great send off. Everybody subscribe to the next big podcast, Smart Talks. Elizabeth Smart, thank you for everything that you've given to us today and all that you have left in you for, um, for all of us going forward. Thank you for your books, My Story, and Where There's Hope. Hope you have a great week and your family is safe and thriving. Thank you so much. You too. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you back next week on a new episode of On Leadership.